3: Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tasha Robinson.
2: Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at a pair of love stories, I think. Tasha, if you don't mind putting down your correspondence for a bit, could you tell us about the films we'll be discussing?
3: Sure, but first you're going to have to help me come up with a killer costume idea for this ball I'm invited to. This week's films both look at complex relationships, troubled by forces both within and without their central couples. Both explore the unspoken codes and shifting power dynamics of marriage. Both consider the way outside elements can upset romantic chemistry. Both feature powerful men and women who can look powerless beside them, at least from a distance. Finally, both are films that resist easy classification. Released in 1940 and adapted from Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca brought Alfred Hitchcock, famous for his beautifully crafted British thrillers, into the American studio system. But in spite of the mystery at its center, Rebecca is a departure from Hitchcock's earlier light-touch suspense hits like The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes. It draws more from horror films and melodramas for its unsettling tone. Paul Thomas Anderson's new Phantom Thread is similarly hard to define. It's a romance that plays as if it's dancing on the edge of a tragedy.
2: Their slipperiness, however, helps unite them, as does their nebulous take on coupledom, which opens them up to all manner of interpretation. We'll get into that and more after the break.
1: The Selznick Studio's successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne de Maurier's bestseller as the most exciting love story of our time. The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier. Why?
0: It's Max de Winter. How
1: do you know? Do? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine.
0: How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca.
1: What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley?
0: Not only in this room, it's in all the rooms in the
1: house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living?
0: Tell me, is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours or
1: just a relation?
0: No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. I
1: didn't know companionship could be bought. There is mystery, love and laughter in Rebecca. The motion picture still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance.
2: Alfred Hitchcock came to America to make a film about the Titanic. Instead of telling the story of a sinking ship, however, he made a movie about a burning house. Last night, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Joan Fontaine's protagonist, a woman we'll know only as the second Mrs. De Winter, says over an appropriately dreamlike shot that slowly creeps up to a cornish manner that seems not quite real. She's speaking of it in past tense, but it's the only moment that suggests the film is transpiring as a flashback. The effect is unavoidable. This is a place whose fate is already sealed and with it, the fates of all those who pass through it. The story may be just beginning, but its outcome is fixed. Like the past itself, it can only be revisited in dreams, where we're helpless and capable of changing anything. That doomy, foreboding opening sets the tone for the film, but the characters within the film itself often seem intent on being part of a different sort of story. Fontaine's second Mrs. De Winter is an outsider to Manderley and to England's upper class. After marrying Manderley's master, Maxim De Winter, played by Laurence Olivier, she arrives unfamiliar with its ways and traditions. This leads to quite a bit of awkwardness. She doesn't know how to entertain or even how to fill her days, what room to sit in at any given moment. She doesn't know how to get along with Mrs. Danvers, played by Judith Anderson, Manderley's housekeeper, and a woman who doesn't try to hide her obsessive fixation on the first Mrs. de Winter. And then there's a matter of the first Mrs. de Winter herself, the Rebecca of the title. Never seen and dead sometime before the film begins, she haunts Manderley as surely as any ghost. It's not a Hitchcock picture. It's a novelette, really, Hitchcock told Francois Truffaut as part of the extensive interviews that became the book Hitchcock Truffaut. He continues, quote, The story is old-fashioned. There was a whole school of feminine literature at that period, and though I'm not against it, the fact is the story is lacking in humor, unquote. Hitchcock felt he had reason to distance himself from the film beyond a shortage of humor. Its production was defined by his stormy relationship with producer David O. Selznick, who insisted on a more faithful adaptation than Hitchcock wanted and exerted control whenever possible. Nonetheless, Rebecca was a turning point for Hitchcock, even beyond bringing him to America. It's the place where his ambitions broaden, his themes deepen, and his characters grow richer. Rebecca lacks the sort of suspense set piece Hitchcock fans might have come to expect, and its central mystery is its weakest element, one softened by the production code demands that Baxton himself could not kill Rebecca, as he did in the book. Instead, the suspense comes from the interplay between its characters. Maxim's attraction towards the second Mrs. DeWinter sours, then changes again, as a relationship previously defined by his control over her changes to become one in which his salvation rests in her hands. The links to which Mrs. Danvers will conceal her true motivations becomes its own kind of suspense. She barely hides her love for her Rebecca, and her hatred for her successor, until she doesn't hide it at all. And ultimately, that's the tension at the heart of the movie between what we hide and what we show, what we say and what we keep to ourselves, and the choices we make between these options when trying to determine what will save us from a house that's destined to burn to the ground.
0: Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden... The supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again. And little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. On and on wound the poor thread that had once been our drive. And finally, there was Mandalin. Manderley, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy. And suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows. And then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell with no whisper of the past about its staring walls. We can never go back to Mandalay again. That much is certain. But sometimes, in my dreams, I do go back.
2: So, um, Rebecca, I hadn't seen this in a while. I was really happy to revisit it. How about everybody else?
0: It had
3: definitely been quite a while for me. Um, I think I last saw this in college, and I've seen a lot of Hitchcock since and revisited some uh, Hitchcock multiple times since then. This is not one of my favorite Hitchcocks. I really like some of the performances in this. There are some just indelible moments and and sequences. Uh, The cinematography is really impressive. There's a lot to recommend it, but at the same time, I don't love the structure of it, which kind of bogs down for me a bit in places, and and especially towards the end, it kind of falls into that Hitchcockian problem of now we're going to explain everything from a psychological mm-hmm. vantage point. I would have liked to, I think, in the end, spend more time either with the second Mrs. De Winter or with Mrs. Danvers. There's just there's so much drama there. There's so much tension. And they're both such such interesting characters. I kind of feel like the climax of the movie happens between them on that balcony. And everything from there is just kind of explanation of the past in a way that makes the film feel a little stiff.
4: I guess I would agree with you, but not quite as strongly. I think that if you were to say maybe the the third act is certainly not the strongest of the three. (laughs) Um, But what's good about the film is really extraordinary to me, seeing it again, especially on a Criterion Blu-ray. It was just Hitchcock never worked before. And really, again, if maybe North by Northwest would be an example at this level in terms of production values, it's such... A rich beautiful like classy production and the photography as you mentioned the production design the costumes there's just a opulence to it and I think that's something that David L. Selznick brings to the table that Hitchcock never really had before or since and that makes this film special uh, and then on top of that I think the the performances by Fontaine by Olivier and especially by Anderson just they're wonderful, and and these are really strong characters, and a, a melodrama that is quite gripping for as, as long as it as it can be, uh, until you get to that mystery, which is as Keith mentions, not as exciting. But overall, I I love it. I think it's really top drawer. For
5: me, the kind of the whole movie is that scene where the second Mrs. DeWinter goes into Rebecca's room and is confronted by Mrs. Danvers. Like, nothing to me even approaches that scene in terms of just the depth of themes and character we're seeing, uh, but also in terms of how it meshes with that opulence that mm-hmm. you know, which is one of the most appealing parts of this film for me too. And um, yeah, I'll just chime in on not really feeling the third act and adding that I think in addition to it maybe being sort of a thing that Hitchcock struggled with throughout his career is the film, as Keith mentioned, is kind of kneecapped by the production code and having to sort of explain their way out of the would be the more satisfying conclusion of the "quote unquote" mystery, such as it is. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of a conflation of bad circumstances you at, to at the end.
2: Turn somersaults to get out of that yeah. too. But, but uh, that said, the production code wasn't really getting in the way of some other elements. Yeah. I mean the, the whole <laughs> like that scene. That, all, yeah. that yeah. scene is so remarkable and so intense and so creepy and. Sad as well. I I mean, Mrs. Danvers is is completely the villain in this film, but you know she's a woman who clearly has loved somebody and wants something and had some happiness in her life that's been taken away from her, and that's you know she's going to hurt people now because of that. But at the same time, you know, you see where she's coming from in that scene. I mean, it's 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 a a remarkable sequence, and yeah, I don't love the third act. I do love the ending, the actual burning of of Mm -hmm. of Amanda Lee is such an extraordinary visual, and I love the opening so much. It's such a great you know not not to get back on an old topic I've talked about before it's a case for where, where special effects that aren't necessarily realistic can be more effective I mean it, it, everything is you know it's all miniatures mm-hmm. there at the beginning and and it's it feels not quite right not quite real but it, it shouldn't you know I I think that's the perfect use of that I love um, Fontaine in this movie, too. I have it on, on the list here of things to get into later, but um, it is tough for someone who's that pretty to play someone who doesn't think of herself as such, thinks of herself as mousy and undesirable. And you really get the feeling that she doesn't understand um, how she can be sw- swept into this glamorous life. And, you know, I think the whole movie in a lot of ways hinges on, on being there and, and believing that. And I think she does a remarkable job in this movie.
4: Yeah I mean that that performance and what Hitchcock is able to do by really locking into her perspective and really getting us to feel how powerless she is in that situation of how she's just gifted in a way uh, cursed with this opportunity as just a lowly companion paid companion to be able to be the wife of someone who's rich and important but then when she arrives i mean what what can she do i mean you know even if it weren't full of embroidered R's everywhere mm-hmm. uh reminding her that this is not her home just to adjust to what is expected of her and what her life is supposed to be you know you really feel for her and you feel how trapped she is and uh, that's a, that's good direction and that's good good acting
5: Speaking of those monogrammed Rs in reading about this film in preparation I came across the factoid that Selznick wanted the smoke from the fire to make an R. <laughs> like a monogram in the yeah. sky. <laughs> so, terrible idea that was very yeah, very he was, terrible. He was full of ideas and yep. also
2: also full of pills. <laughs> <laughs>
5: So I think I think the final image we landed on is preferable, in it's, my opinion. It's,
3: it's always fun to hear about. I mean, it, it, this is effectively the deleted scene of its day because mm-hmm. Hitchcock apparently came in and, and reshot that because he knew it was a terrible, tacky <laughs> idea. And just it makes me it makes me like him just a little bit more. I mean, I'm a huge Hitchcock fangirl, but knowing that like somewhere somewhere in the back of his head, he was like, I'm gonna wait till Selznick is busy with another project, and then I'm gonna sneak in and fix that because that is some crap. <laughs> uh,
2: as such as, as a Hitchcock fangirl, self-described we should talk about how this fits into his filmography. I, I may have drawn it as too convenient of a dividing line between what came before and what came later but I'm mean, just looking at it like I feel like there's a depth and a darkness and, and a, an investment in characters in films like Suspicion and Saboteur and Shadow of a Doubt and things that come immediately afterward to say nothing of the films of, of your vertigos and such that come, come later that wasn't as present before you know this, this is in some ways kind of an outline in his filmography, it's for all the unmistakable Hitchcockian touches, it's it's in some ways outside the genre in which he usually works. But how do you see that as, you know, am, am I wrong to describe it as kind of a turning point or how do you see it fitting in into the rest of his filmography?
3: I don't think you're wrong at all. Turning point may be a little strong, but it does feel like a break from the past. I have to wonder how much of that is Selznick's influence here, though, because Hitchcock has such an interest in the psychology of people, in the psychology of, of relationships in particular, and he has such such an interest in that kind of like dark, troubled psychological profile and the horrible things that it leads to, and there's so much of that here, but it just it feels so buried under a very Selznickian formality. The fascination with these vast spaces and people moving silently through them, the just the whole idea of like the grandeur of of English country living among the the immensely well-to-do. There's a formalism to that that I really don't see in a lot of, a lot of Hitchcock's work. And I feel like he has these very vibrant characters and they they kind of rattle around a little bit inside these spaces. The scenes where he gets close up on his characters and he concentrates on their emotion, you know, the scene where Olivier explains what happened, the scene on the balcony and and the whole bedroom scene just resonate for me in such a, a bigger way than, you know, for instance, when Fontaine is exploring the house and being intimidated by it.
4: Oh god, I love that stuff so much.
3: I am not I, saying I don't love it. We're just talking about where it fits with
5: his Yeah. I,
4: well, I mean, I think it, it, it was it's important in that he was making a, a big production and learning what that's like.
5: A big Hollywood production. A big
4: Hollywood production, right? Cuz he he'd made he made he made it's kind of the equivalent of getting a Marvel
2: movie. In this, in this uh, <laughs> I was, I was,
4: I was actually half joking that David O. Selznick was the Kevin Feige of his day, <laughs> um, in the sense that they, that it's true in the, in the in the very narrow sense that Selznick was like producer as auteur, and that he asserted himself into his productions in a way that made his presence felt. But I also f- think there's kind of a productive clash happening here between two sensibilities between Hitchcock and Selznick, and and their Elements that Selznick brings to the table purely in terms of production value that enhance the film enormously and that Hitchcock takes advantage of as much as possible, you know, particularly once you get inside the house and explore it. I, I love all of that stuff. I love, you know, getting to know the this huge team that runs the place and seeing all the rooms and how they're decorated in meaningful ways. I mean, there's a lot, there's so much thought put into that and so much money. So there's that. And as far as, I think it was probably a learning experience for Hitchcock in terms of how do I work in Hollywood? And um,
3: (laughs) what can I get away with? Where can I push back? Yeah. How much can I sneak in and, and fix the things I don't like when the producer's not looking?
4: Yeah. And I think there's a thing too about Hitchcock learning that John Ford thing of shooting movies subsequent movies in such a way to where they could not be screwed with in post production right that was the ford technique just like i'm going to make it the film so that it can't be cut any other way than the way i want it to be cut maybe that was a takeaway as well but but i think it's a pretty important movie in his career even though it seems strange and i think it's got hitchcockian touches of it even though it's not you know vertigo or Rear Window. It's still very much a recognizable Hitchcock film.
3: Oh, sure. I mean, it's still got the dark psychological value, and I do feel like Fontaine is a very Hitchcockian female protagonist. I feel like she's very much of a cut of other Hitchcockian protagonists that we see that have that same kind of of combination of liveliness and uh, just a little bit of insecurity, of kind of pushy forwardness, and yet reticence when they're confronted with a stronger personality. You know, they're very vibrant on screen, but at the same time, they're just a little demure to kind of fit in with the times like she feels very much like a, a hitchcockian character and uh, mrs danvers feels like uh, an early version of norman bates or an early version of norman bates mother both <laughs> visually and just in terms of the the sheer quiet menace she projects even when she's not running around with a knife in her hand
2: maybe it's just i'm older but i remember her being older and she's Not old. She's younger than me (laughs) when she made this movie. She's in her early 40s. It's strange how how maybe the mind kind of conflates Mrs. Bates and and Mrs. Danvers at some point.
3: Well, it's the, it's the hairstyle and the clothing yeah, style. Yeah. It's very, very similar visually.
2: Well, as long as we're talking about Mrs. Danvers, what is your reaction? I kind of, I kind of laid out mine a little bit earlier, but how do you feel about Mrs. Danvers?
3: I mean, she's terrifying. Uh, and I, I think it's fascinating how terrifying she is. But as you say, there's that moment in the bedroom where she's, I, I feel like she's authentically trying to share her love of uh, the old Mrs. DeWinter with the new girl. And she just she gets this softness on her face, especially especially... especially when she's creepily stroking the woman's uh, face with the the fur coat, where she's just so clearly trying to open up to somebody, trying to communicate with somebody. And I love that performance so much because there's that entire sequence feels you can feel The struggle between I – this is the most important thing in my life and I want to share it with you and by the way, this is proof that you're never going to be any good and you should die. Like she's lording it over her but at the same time, just something comes into her face that's a vulnerability of this is so wonderful. I love this so much. By the way, here are her under things. It's (laughs) such a terrific combination of creepiness and openness and – awfulness. Uh, and I really wish the celluloid closet hadn't told me that it was all just c- a coded version of she's a lesbian, so she's evil. I think
2: it's more she's a lesbian and she's evil. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that, that, I don't know.
3: I mean, the, the, the yeah. celluloid closet very much makes the point that in the era, those those were one and the same. It was just sure. another way of characterizing evil.
2: It's
5: probably the only way that those... Undertones slash overtones made it past the censors. Mm. Is that she is evil and is killed and gets her comeuppance at the end? Pretty much, villains had to die in the mm. in the code, it's right?
2: The rest right? away with it. Yeah, yeah arrest yeah. or death.
5: I don't know. It feels like a character that is definitely shaded by circumstance, like the circumstance under which this movie was made. That uh, I, don't, I don't want to say extra textual, Scott. Go, please, but, go but, for but, but, it. But, but it, I think it, it's one you really kind of have to take into an account when reading this character, unless you just want to totally ignore those undertones slash overtones Uh, so you
4: thought it was pretty like obvious that there was some
5: uh yeah i I think the moment when she's like fondling her lingerie from the inside and (laughs) noting how sheer it is i think that's kind of the moment where any doubt was stripped away it's
1: it's a a
4: aesthetic thing Uh, you know
5: (laughs) This this movie does really like sheer material. I will give it that. So maybe it's just an extension of that. Lots of billowing curtains. And... You can see your hands
3: right through it. Yeah. <laughs> so am I wrong in feeling like there's a build to her character that I don't remember from the first time I, I saw this movie? I feel like when I really wish that the second Mrs. DeWinter had a first name, it's telling and interesting and yet just really sort of frustrating that she doesn't have an identity before she becomes his wife
2: oh,
4: but when she, but, but it pays off so well when she when she just comes says it when she says i'm Mrs.
3: DeWinter. I, there, I've got so much to say about that moment, but, <laughs> but this is a different moment. I feel like when she first shows up at the house, there is a sort of slow sequence with Mrs. Danvers where she is authentically willing to welcome somebody new into the house and she's waiting for that in the same sort of way that, you know, when you, when you have a crush on somebody and that person leaves or that relationship ends in whatever way, you might hold on to the crush, but when you meet somebody new, you might be open to a new relationship. I feel like there's just a a sort of touch of, is this going to be the new most important thing in my life? And then she sees her and it just slowly starts to go downhill. And I feel like there's a build in the story where you can actually watch Mrs. Danvers become more and more disapproving and more and more set in that way. I think that if she had showed up and had, had been, you know more like the old the old Rebecca, if she had been more commanding and put Mrs. Danvers in her place from the beginning, they might have had a very different relationship and I, that makes the movie very interesting for me am i am I wrong am I making this up?
4: No, yeah. So, yeah.
2: So does just sort of, her, I mean, there's sort of a general wickedness to her or there's sort of a wickedness, recognized wickedness uh, moment between she and George Sanders' character, uh, Rebecca's cousin and, and uh, lover, where they have like sort of this kind of unholy pact between the two of them. It's a very interesting relationship.
5: Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting that through that relationship, it's revealed that Rebecca and presumably Favel as well called her Danny. Like Mrs. Danvers Mm, is Danny and just like Hmm. it's so different. It's like such a different way of addressing and thinking about that character. And just like I think the evocation of that name suggests something about the relationship between Mrs. Danvers slash Danny and Rebecca that adds a lot of shading to the circumstances okay. we are seeing her in now
4: is it relevant i mean we haven't talked about though mrs danvers relationship to maxim though and whether that's relevant to all this too because i mean to give you i guess maybe a sneak preview into the next episode mm-hmm. if you're looking at analog the serial character in phantom thread would be your your danvers character and she's very protective of her Brother and has mm-hmm. and uh, and suspicious of the Fontaine character of that film, who's Alma. So I'm curious about what you thought of Mrs. Danvers' relationship to Maxim and how that figures into the sort of welcome that she gives Fontaine.
5: I have to admit, I didn't really think. About them having a relationship outside of her relationship to Rebecca, like she seems. Unless I, I miss some dialogue, she seems like just an, an artifact of Rebecca that has continued to linger around the house. Which I guess is maybe a way to frame her and Maxim's relationship is that she is sort of this. Imposing black column of a reminder of his sins, so to speak.
2: Yeah, she perpetuates the hold that Rebecca had over him, which we don't really understand until fairly late in the movie. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's as much as symbolic as a, as it is an actual personal relationship.
4: What does she want, though? What does Mrs. Danvers want? I think
2: she wants to kind of keep it as a haunted house.
5: Yeah, to, she wants to, to preserve Rebecca's mm, room and fill it with fresh flowers every day and okay. <laughs> keep keep anyone away from from it, you know, like
3: And she certainly wants to stay in the house. You know, she I always felt that there was just the faintest hint of jealousy of him because, you know, he he got to be married to her, he got to be close to her at least from what she sees. Mm. But she has to kind of maintain this, uh, this like formal uprightness and like do an excellent job because she has to stay in his employ, or she might be sent away from Rebecca's things and Rebecca's memories. That said, I, I mean, I think their their relationship is very formal and and precise and proper. But I also think that he's fairly oblivious to it. Mm-hmm. Like he goes off into his fits of melancholy, but it, it really seems like that's entirely internal to him and that she doesn't have that much effect on him. I, I well, see him as somebody who cares that much about the help. Well, she wears black and is over 36, so he doesn't <laughs> care about <her. laughs> oh my god the moment where he uh, he tells his new wife to never be 36 <laughs> and just oh gosh the whole business about him being so disappointed in her because she stopped seeming mm-hmm. clumsy and innocent there's like there's just a hint of twilight in all of this that's really kind of
5: gross I mean there's a very overt infantilization happening in his attraction such as it is to the second Mrs. De Winter. that is
3: really icky the moment where he tells her that if she asks if she really has to wear her coat to go out and he says oh yes you can't be
2: too careful with children
3: yeah and he's referring to her i mean they're married at that point that's gross
2: yeah it is i think the film knows that though. oh yeah for I think, absolutely I think the film is plays it to the hilt and, and then when you know it shifts to, to all the power rests with her after a certain point i think that's part of what makes the film interesting and i think it's part of why we're comparing it to, to phantom thread
3: i will say this most of my problems with the film are just structurally because the most interesting characters drop away over time and are replaced by an endless series of men explaining things, mm. just giving like lengthy end of psycho-esque speeches but the the tension that the film builds between characters and particularly the way it sets us up to want some very specific things is up there with some of some of Hitchcock's best tension and i it starts with the second mrs de winter and her terrible terrible employer who berates her and <laughs> infantilizes her and talks down to her and just every moment that they're together you're gritting your teeth and saying, get out of there, get out of there. And then she goes on and starts dealing with Mrs. Danvers and you're gritting your teeth and saying, you know, (laughs) make her stop, stand up for yourself, stop putting yourself down. And she has a relationship with her husband and he treats her like a child and you're gritting your teeth and saying, you know, grow up. And the moment I told you we were going to get back to this, Yes, the moment where she says, I am Mrs. DeWinter, it's just like such physical relief yeah
4: that's where the fact that they don't give her a name pays off because her not having a name not having an editing not even being worth having a name being such a worthless human being that with, with of no stature that the film itself even denies her a name <laughs> It just it, it makes that moment of self-actualization and, and power so refreshing and exciting when when she finally gets to that point and then of course when she can finally share some real intimacy and something unique with Maxim, you know, it was some some knowledge about who Rebecca really was and they can actually talk about it and they they finally have a stake in in this thing together as a unit, it just you know, the whole atmosphere of the film just shifts in a very exciting way.
5: But in between those two moments, Mrs. Danvers' basically makes her pay for asserting herself with the whole costume trick, trick, you know, and So it's not as simple as like she asserts that this is who she is. And then she becomes that person. Like there's forces keeping that from.
4: That's true. I was, I I wasn't mindful of the timeline there. Uh, who can forget the, uh, the, that costume, which of course, (laughs) you know, that's coming. Yeah. (laughs) You you know, like, Oh, this is, don't take, don't take costume advice from Mrs. Danvers. (laughs) This is not going to go well, but,
5: uh, I am suspicious of the fact that for as much as everyone in this house, like, to talk about Rebecca. No one pointed out to her that that was Rebecca at any point prior to this conversation. But, I don't think that was know.
3: Rebecca. I think that was a, like some ancestor of Maxim's. She just wore the same costume. Got it. That's not an image of her in the costume. Okay. okay. Well, that makes sense. I retract my
5: slight objection.
3: <laughs> I, I mean, I... So we don't see a picture of Rebecca, do we? No. I, I think that's very important because it, it, lends, it lets you imagine the most beautiful thing you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And I think if we saw an image of her, we'd immediately start to compare that to everybody's
4: descriptions of her. It doesn't have the Mr. Holland's opus problem.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Remember that art we've been talking about for the whole film? Here is that is. art. Oh, Judge it. <laughs> Judge it hard. See also rent.
4: Speaking of art, she's an artist in this film. Wait, no, we were not going to talk about her. Uh, we are talking about her artwork as not being uh
3: For as much
5: as I don't care for and you're not supposed to care for uh, Maxim's various belittling of, <laughs> of his second wife, I kind of feel him on his assessment of her her drawing yeah. skills,
3: yeah. I just sort of bristle a little at her whole uh, her meeting with the family and that sort of moment of well, you know, what do you do? Like, surely you you ride the hound, surely you yeah. sail, surely you you know have some sort of ladylike incredibly, <laughs> incredibly expensive and impractical <laughs> hobby. What, I mean, what have you been doing with your life?
4: <laughs> like you ride side saddle, or
3: <laughs> I just said compute. I don't ride, dude. <laughs> 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 Another. Moment where the film just makes us want something really specific, and that is for her to say, "What did I just
5: say?" <laughs> Except she, she's such an uncertain character. She'd be more like, "What did I
3: just say?" <laughs> there were times that her hesitancy and self-judgment really grated on me. Mm-hmm. Does that go too far? Is that just me? No,
5: I mean I had the same reaction. I had to be mindful of like not letting my reaction to her character's just sort of wimpiness <laughs> take away from what the film was trying to achieve in their relationship dynamic, because I really didn't like her. <laughs> like I would not want to spend a lot of time with the second Mrs. De Winters now in 2018,
2: but who would? Yeah. But I, I think, I don't know. I think the frustration is baked into that. I think, I think mm-hmm. uh, well, you yeah, know, a 1940 audience would, would have been frustrated with her as well too. There's, you know, kind of doing the, the equivalent of screaming get out like we were talking about. Yeah. But
4: you think about it if you think about it though, and this is something again I think Hitchcock does very well in sticking by this character is is that she has no choice at any point it's like it's not like she has some fallback position it's like she's climbed to the top the highest rung of the social ladder but the ladder is gone the ladder has disappeared behind her and and if she if she's off that rung she's gonna fall you know what i mean there's there's no place for her to go this is she has to make this she has to make it work make this work If if it doesn't work she's going to be stuck in the position where it doesn't work she is just trapped in that house and in that situation Uh, and i also think that dawn's on her almost immediately doesn't it mm-hmm. i mean when she when she is confronted by such an intimidating The intimidation of the house, the intimidation of the staff, of of Mrs. Danvers, of things that are expected of her in the morning where she has to be by a certain certain fire and has to be by a different fire in the library later on in the day. And I I think all of these things are so (laughs) overwhelming to her to try to to figure out, but she has to do it. We filled
3: out your calendar agenda. It involves a lot of fire.
4: Fire in the morning Mm -hmm. in this room. And then, then you go to the library. Unless you want to freeze, then you go to the library in the morning.
3: The construction of her introduction to the staff is just so good that the, the, the sudden rainstorm and the fact that she comes in not dressed f- like for the formality of that house and soaking wet and looking a bit like a, a frightened drowned rat. <laughs> and they're, of course, they're all you know in there meeting the new lady of the house. Best. It's just such a terrific, terrific sequence of
4: shots. Nuts. How about them going over their honeymoon footage, too? <laughs> I,
3: I, I found that a really interesting sequence because we, we really don't get anything yeah. to indicate that they've ever had that kind of happiness or even physical contact, mm-hmm. really. You know, we get some formal dancing, but... Uh, And like a little bit of clutching, but like the moment where they're making out in front of the car in the movies, it's almost like Hitchcock is deliberately setting this entirely up as a flashback removed from them, because it makes it feel like it didn't happen. Mm. Mm. It's like they're remembering what their relationship should be instead of what it actually is. Because that's the scene where he keeps calling her an idiot. And she keeps falling over him saying, you know, we're happy, aren't we? We're happy. And it's, it's like we have two images, the film that we're watching and the film that they're watching. And they portray entirely different relationships.
2: So I want to talk about the central relationship, uh, which we haven't really got into in, in great detail. And I, I'll ask a simple question. Is this a love story?
5: Mm. It's a relationship story. Okay. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> and probably the same thing I would say about Phantom Thread, but we'll get into that.
4: So that's a love story, though. Mm. That, I would say, is a love story. This is this is a little less less so, I would say.
3: Eh, come back in two days and
5: we'll, Interesting.
4: we'll see. Okay.
3: It's but- a story about need. It's a story about mutual need. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the same needs. At first, she thinks that they they have love. And then it turns out that they both have very different needs, and I think that by the end kind of the whole informal trial situation puts them in a situation where they suddenly do both have the same needs and, and enables them to bond. But to begin with, what he seems to need is someone that is as different from Rebecca as possible, somebody that is not in control, that will not overbear or overwhelm him, that will not give orders, that will not challenge him in any way. And like what she needs is somebody to support her and care for her. And they think they've both found it and then rebecca interferes and another kind of
5: contrast between their relationship and his relationship with rebecca and this is obviously because of the time not so explicit but just the lack of sexuality in their relationship like with the exception of the the honeymoon footage which you note it feels like sort of removed from reality like there is no passion between these two characters and we learn that rebecca was among other things, like a creature of passion, you know, and who actively pursued those passions bodily and otherwise, you know. And I think the sterile nature of their relationship is just reflection of that, of that contrast with Rebecca.
3: Do you guys have theories about what exactly Rebecca told him? I assume that the film leaves that as blank as possible, so we'll fill it in with the worst things we can imagine. But it always comes a little bit as a surprise to me that she has this man who was her lover and maybe also her cousin. I'm still not entirely 100% on the truth of that
2: statement. No, they're cousins, I believe. It would be a tough lie to pull off, I think, in that society.
3: Well, I mean, her entire apparent history of debauchery would be a tough lie to put off of that society. Fair enough. I don't know. I just, it always throws me a little bit, both that she could have gotten away with living such a double life, and whatever it is she tells him on that cliffside that cannot ever be spoken of again. I
2: think we'll have to leave that dangling as a mystery and probably conclude this part of our discussion. Maybe we'll circle back to it in part two. Right now, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes. now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our pairing of talented Mr. Ripley and Call Me By Your Name prompted some thoughtful responses, one of them holiday-themed. Genevieve, would you like to read our first letter?
5: Absolutely. Rachel writes, You mentioned that Call Me By Your Name ends with what I believe is the seventh night of Hanukkah, and how coincidental it is that it's currently the holiday season. This letter was sent a month or so ago. <laughs> Rachel continues, I would argue that this entire film is a modern take on the Hanukkah story. Hanukkah is about the Jews fighting for autonomy against the conquering forces of Hellenism. Call Me By Your Name is a film entrenched in Greco-Roman architecture and art, taking place in northern Italy, devoid of any Jews besides the Perlmans and Oliver. Hanukkah is a holiday primarily about Jewish identification and distinction in the face of adversity. Unlike Elio and his family, Oliver wears the Star of David, a symbol embraced by 19th and 20th century Jewish youth groups who were heavily influenced by the story of the Maccabees. However, instead of the Jewish fight against Hellenism, this movie is about the merging of these two values. The origins of the name Ilio come from the Greek sun god Helios and Oliver from the word olive, which is the real hero of the Hanukkah story for providing the oil for the menorah and is celebrated in a favorite snack of Ilios, the Latka. Guadagnino forces us to gaze at the beauty and masculinity of their Jewish bodies, making them look more similar to Hermes of Praxiteles than Shylock the Jew. Still, they wear their stars against their bare chests, an assertion of their identity and resistance to heteronormativity, and the time is tracked by the tolling of the church bells. The Maccabean period did not last long, and Elio and Oliver's summer comes to an end. But just as Hanukkah has become part of the Jewish tradition, Elio allows his relationship with Oliver to become part of him, using the fire to ignite his own memory of the past. Let's just say this is a great replacement for Eight Crazy Nights. And as a P.S., if you do read this on the air and I haven't taken too much time, shout out to my film buddy, fellow fan, and fellow Jew, Haim. Wow. <laughs> Guys. A Hanukkah movie. I love
4: it. That's all I can say. I think that's, a, that's a fantastic. It's a good argument for it. Yeah. Argument. I mean, God knows we need a decent Hanukkah movie. Maybe this is it.
2: Why don't we redo the episode with this one and Eight Crazy Nights?
4: <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> is it enough of a classic yet? Has it been around long enough? I know. It I will think that's be. the only thing. It only thing be. holding
2: us back is that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it has
4: not I think, or maybe long. just the Hanukkah song. We would do. It would be <laughs> yeah, one yeah. one whole episode.
5: Ah, uh, that cinematic masterpiece, that's the Hanukkah song.
4: It, I'm just saying, there's probably more to talk about there than there is in the, about the film Eight Crazy Nights. But um, I love this theory. I mean, it it stretches much like the oil, in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over the, it, it it seems like it can only really burn so much, and then it just goes for the full. Uh, <laughs> uh, eight nights, so uh, I was uh, impressed by that.
3: You guys uh, know that I'm not the hugest fan of Call Me By Your Name, and uh, I'm not going to get into it, but people have been talking to me about it online, and one of the things that keeps coming up is, well, if you look at this elaborate symbolism, uh, this scene makes more sense. If you look at the literary construction of this sequence, this makes more sense. And for me, a lot of that just doesn't come across in the movie, but it makes me really want to read the book, because I really get the impression that there is a lot of deep, complex thought through symbolism going on in this story, and I wonder if it manifests more clearly in the novel.
2: Call Me By Your Name also prompts a response from Kimberly Jones, and we're using her full name since she's editor-in-chief and film critic for the Austin Chronicle. And you can go read her review of the film when you're done with this podcast. We'll link to it on the Facebook page. Scott, would you like to read an extra from Kimberly's long letter, which we'll post in full on the Facebook page as well?
4: Certainly. Kimberly writes, I loved y'all's—she's from Austin, so she says (laughs) y'all—I loved y'all's discussion of the film. However, I do quibble with your interpretation of Michael Stuhlbarg's gorgeous monologue at the end of the film. Specifically the moment when Elio asks his father do you think mom knows this moment is everything you all seem to think it was about Elio asking as if his mom Anelia knew about his relationship with Oliver I disagree Elio's question comes after his father has revealed in careful coded language that he too had a significant moment in time with another man a relationship he cherished but it didn't turn physical it seems to his regret and I think that is what this exchange is about The scene at large is a beautiful evocation of a father comforting slash welcoming his teenage son into the exquisite pain and joy of first love and sex. But this tiny question and answer elevates the scene even more in the way it tilts Elio away from his own preoccupations and more toward an adult understanding of his father, his choices and regrets, and their seeming agreement that mom is in the dark about them what 's even more interesting is that well, I think they 're wrong. We have enough evidence of her sophistication and sensitivity to assume andelian knows what 's what and she 's not the only one. Uh, the letter goes on to offer a more detailed defense of the movie 's female character, the mom included, so uh, you'll want to read that on facebook, but let 's deal with what 's here what do you What do you think of this interpretation of that particular? exchange.
5: I'm really glad Kimberly wrote in with this because I did have that interpretation of the scene when I watched the film. But I think in our discussion, we kind of got sidetracked in the discussion of whether Anelia knows about Oliver and Elio. So we kind of like pivoted to that before exploring what I I think is probably an intentional double meaning here. Like, I think you can read it either way in terms of whether they're talking about his father's relationship or his relationship with Oliver. And I think that's part of what makes the scene so cool and resonant. And
2: I write the way Kimberly does. I'm I'm on, I'm on your side, Kimberly.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I, I specifically remember like discussing the scene in that context with the people I watched the film with. But I think the other reading of Elio being concerned that his mom knows about him and Oliver is also like a possible reading just in terms of sort of the... Teenage insecurity that we get from that character in that discussion, but I like that it can be applied to either either man. I'm
4: concerned about whether I mean this is not the most permissive time, and so so I think the more people who know know about this could concern him certainly. But I I don't know. My interpretation was not Kimberly's, but now that she's articulated it, it's given me. I think I just missed something important, so (laughs) I'm kind of glad it's here.
5: I, I think that scene is just like so much more beautiful than it already is if you are also seeing his father's like pain and regret and nostalgia coming through in addition to sort yeah. of fatherly guidance and advice. Like you, you see what is informing that guidance and advice. And I,
4: Yeah. But I, maybe I, the thing that got me was I thought that he was speaking to a pretty universal type of experience about lo- early love and how how to process that and how to hold on to a certain feeling and not let it go or, or fade in any way. It, it never occurred to me at that time. It obviously Kimberly is articulating it now, that he that he was talking about him, himself and revealing something personal about himself at that moment. But, oh,
3: that's uh, fascinating. I, I read it the exact opposite way. I, I very much read it as him sharing a moment with his son because it's something that possibly only the two of them can understand. Mm-hmm. That he was he was reaching out about, you know, I've experienced what you're experiencing, and I experienced it in a different way because it didn't turn physical. And that he's revealing that he may be gay himself or bisexual in a time where both of those things were forbidden. I always read that as he had a young love and he went on and made the decision to marry a woman and have children, which is very, very, very common for gay men at the time. And to me, he's he's revealing that he also has these feelings but possibly couldn't act on them. And then Elio says, does, he, does mom know? And it always, it hurt me just a little that, that the response is, no, I don't think she does. I feel like it it could have been we've never discussed it. And that would have opened up both the the exact same interpretation as far as their relationship was concerned, but it would have shut the mom out a little bit less and made her seem a little less like a dupe.
4: Hmm.
5: Well, in terms of the mom being a dupe, the rest of Kimberly's letter does address the film's handling of female characters. So you should go and read it on Facebook.
2: Thanks, Kimberly. And with that, we'll wrap up uh, our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that does it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Phantom Thread and talk over how both these films deal with delicate relationships and meticulously orchestrated English homes. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at Pod. So always know when a new episode drops until then we'll have everything in readiness for you. We'll see you next time.